everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Before we start, let me open to some prayer. Uh, God, thank you so much for this opportunity to come together and worship on a Sunday morning. Just set our hearts right and look towards you. Uh, God, I thank you for everyone who made it in here today, anyone joining us online, uh, and those who couldn't make it today. God, thank you for just giving us this opportunity. Lord, thank you for today. Amen. Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jacob, and I'm one of the pastors here at Discovery. Uh, and I'm excited you're here. Uh, thank you, Mr. Vickers. Um, hey, after service, uh, I will be up front or wandering around in the back, and I would love to chat with you if we don't know each other. We'll talk a little today, but I've said before, and I will say again, and I will always talk about how the local church, uh, the thing that we do really well uh, is community. Today we're going to talk about pursuing God and following God and doing it together I think, is what makes our church special. So I would love to meet you. If you are joining us online, you can check out our staff page and email one of us, or you can reach out to me directly uh, at communications at dc2.me, and I'd love to connect with you as well. So about two years ago, uh, I had had this crazy busy week. Uh, I'm sure many of you can resonate where you get to the end of a 50, 60, 70-hour week, you have nothing left in the tank. I get to the end of a week full of retreats and visiting people and talking, and I get to Friday, and I've got nothing left. And my wife says, hey, I know you've had a busy week, but I also have an event tomorrow for my job, so you're going to be solo dad all day tomorrow. And I said, wow, that is awesome. I don't think that's what I said. I said, it's no problem. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be the best dad ever from about 7 o'clock when they wake up until about 8 o'clock. And then Netflix is going to be a great dad for about two hours until I like get myself together. I just have to be honest. My wife said, okay. So that night I went out. I'd had such a long week. I bought this big steak. The next morning, it's middle of November, 7 in the morning, I start grilling this steak. It's beautiful. Get it on a plate, let it rest, hang out with my kids turn on Netflix, and I promise this is how the events went. I cut into the steak. I lift the first piece. It may be the most beautiful piece of steak that's ever been cooked in history, and I hear a scream from my living room. I look at the steak for just a second. I was absolutely not considering just eating it and not going. I put the steak down. I went to the living room, and my son is holding his arm and screaming. He's five years old. My daughter is crying. I'm shouting. I'm trying to figure out what's happening. They can't tell me. Finally, my son tells me, or my daughter tells me, Eli reached and touched the fireplace. He touched the glass on the fireplace. I look at his hand. It's red. It's raw. Uh, we have this glass around our fireplace, presumably to keep us safe so that the fire can't get out and you know, burn down our house. Uh, but what I found out later is this glass around our fireplace hits about seven or 800 degrees. And so my son put his hand on the fireplace, held it there for about two or three seconds, and just seared his hand. So here I am, single dad, 
My steak is being ruined. I throw my kids in clothes. I throw clothes on myself. I rush to Children's Hospital. It's about 20 minutes away. My son is screaming. My daughter's crying. My wife is working. I get in. It's a horrible experience. My wife ends up having to come to Children's Hospital. We finally get help from some nurses, some of whom actually attend Discovery. It was great to see some familiar faces there. It was wonderful. Finally get them all fixed up. Over the next few weeks, he has to go back multiple times, and he's perfectly fine today. Finally, when he's gone through the process long enough, and he's finally stable, and he's able to calm down and articulate, my wife and I sat with Eli, he's five years old, and we said, hey, why'd you do that? Like, why did you touch the fireplace? Like, you you knew that was wrong, right? And he looked at me completely nonchalantly, and he said, well... You and mom always told me not to touch it, and I just wanted to see if you were telling the truth. And I touched it, and it looks like you guys were telling the truth. And I'm not even angry. Like, I'm kind of in shock at that answer, because he said it, like, just so matter-of-factly. And so I said, hey, Eli, I get it. But at least you know now, and you never have to touch it again. And he looks at me, and he kind of gets this, like, thoughtful look on his face, and he says yeah, but I'll probably forget. And if I forget, I'll probably touch it again. And I'm thinking, what a ridiculous response. Like, who would ever make a poor life decision and then make the same poor decision again? Like, who would ever make a bad choice and then keep doing it? Oh, oh yeah, like, like all of us. Um, my son is fine. And if you know my son, none of those responses would surprise you. Uh, He's been to the urgent care so, so, so many times. And I look at him saying, I may make the same poor decision again. And I realize that the poor decisions that I make in my life, the sins, if you will, I tend to kind of have them on a loop. I tend to do the same things over and over again, and I think most of you do too. Uh, This word sin, uh, some of you may not be familiar with this word, or we may be operating from different definitions, so I want to make sure we're on the same page. I'm going to throw it on the screen and give you a few definitions. Uh, You may have heard a transgression against God, as in God has something he wants for you and you do the opposite, being led astray, Or, my personal favorite, the thing you often do in hiding or you look back on with shame that you're sure hurts yourself, your family, your friends, or the people around you, but you just keep doing it. You keep it hidden. Uh, It's the hidden 10%. I think most people I know are really good at showing about 70, 80, 90% of who they are to everyone they meet. But there's this part you keep back, uh, this part that you're often ashamed about, these things you do, these things you do that you hope nobody finds out about, these sins, and we keep going back to them. To be really clear, um, because I'm sure there's someone thinking this, When I say that hidden 10% that you hold back, uh, I do not mean the things you hold back 
um, to protect yourself. Uh, I don't mean the traumas you hold back because you're not willing to share them. That is not what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm talking about the things you do in secret, the things you do that you hope nobody knows about, or the things that you do that it would really bug you if somebody else in the room knew it. That's what we're talking about today. Because many of us fall into patterns of sin. And if I can be really honest, I think the patterns of sin that we fall into are super boring. Um, They're super ho-hum. They're kind of meh because we oftentimes just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, I don't think most people I know sin creatively, if that's even a thing. I think that we just keep falling back on the same vices over and over and over again. Um, And I don't think that sin itself is ho-hum. I don't think that these things you do in hiding are ho-hum, but I think the fact that we follow the same cycle oftentimes uh, is indicative of kind of our brokenness. We're in a series called Twisted Good, where we talk about what God offers us and how we twist it. Today, we're talking about freedom. God offers us freedom, and we choose to put ourselves into enslavement to sin. We don't need anyone else to help us. We do it to ourselves. If sin are a pair of handcuffs, we are really good at putting them around our own wrists and tightening them. We don't need any help. And to be fair, we come by it pretty honestly. Uh, If you look through the Bible, you will see page after page of people who sin, they turn away from God, They fall apart. They call out to God. God saves them. They experience joy. They take a deep breath, and then they just do it again. It is a common occurrence. In fact, if you want to say that you know something about a book of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament that you've never read, um, I just gave you a summary of the book of Judges. It's near the beginning of the Bible, about book seven. And this is the story that repeats over and over and over again. And we see this as a synopsis for what God says is going to happen in Judges 2. If you have a Bible, we're going to go to Judges 2, 1 through 3, and we'll be in here a little bit today. Judges 2. So what you have to know is God has called his people into this chosen land. And in this chosen land, he says, hey, I want you to be set apart. I want you to be different. I want you to be holy. And because of this, there are people here who have a completely different value system that is against everything I stand for. Things like worshiping other gods, things like child sacrifice. And he says, I want you to be apart from them because if you are not, you will fall into what they're doing and that is completely against what I've called you to. We get to Judges 2, which is the second chapter in Judges Uh, And they've already forsaken this. Judges 2, 1 through 3. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt, and I led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant or my promise with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I've also said, I will not drive them out before you. 
They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. I gave you a plan. You're not following it. Now we're going to see what happens. I got a great graphic from a group called The Bible Project. Wonderful videos, if you ever have a chance, where he shows kind of the pattern that the people went through in the book of Judges. We'll throw it on the screen. Um, they sinned. They were oppressed. They hit rock bottom, and they repented. They called out to God and said, please help, please help us. And every single time, God delivered them. They experienced a time of peace, and then they sinned again. In fact, as you go through the lives of the judges, it's, it's almost comical to watch the people sin, go through this process, this judge leads them, and then as soon as this judge dies, before the dirt is like planted on their grave, the people are sinning in the same way again, the same process, six, seven, eight, nine times, over and over again, the same sins. I'll give an example from the first judge, a guy named Othniel, in Judges 3, 7 through 11. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs, the other gods. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan and Rishonim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land held peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. The land held peace for 40 years until the person who saved them, the person who helped set them apart, kind of fell out of sight for a minute and they flipped it again. Next comes Ehud, sold into slavery, called out to God. God saves the people. Time of peace falls back into the habit. Deborah, well, when they talk about Deborah, it starts with this line, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. Oppressed, hit rock bottom and called out to God. God saved them, a time of peace. They fell back into the habit. Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, it just repeated over and over and over again. The Israelites kept committing the exact same sins over and over and over again, hit rock bottom. And when they hit rock bottom, their God saved them. They rejoiced, and then they did it again. The people of Israel were really good at taking the handcuffs of sin, putting them around their own wrists, tightening them, and then waiting for someone to release them so they could do it again. which feels to me like most of us in this room. The, the things that you get stuck with, the, the sins that you commit, that you keep doing over and over and over again. 
This series is called Twisted Good, where we've been talking about the character of God and how we twist it. The things that God tells us, like he is righteous, um, and so we are self-righteous. He is a forgiver, uh, and so we hold grudges. He is holy. We are profane. He is truth. We self-deceive. He gives freedom. And we enslave ourselves. I find it so easy, and I think this is the people of Israel, I find it so easy to follow and love God on a Sunday morning, surrounded by a bunch of people, singing songs, listening to someone speak, nodding along with what the preacher says. It's just so easy to follow God on a Sunday and can be just so difficult to follow God on a Thursday. We have short memories. We tend to have short memories until we hit crisis. We tend to have short memories until we no longer need, or until we need God again, and then we call out to him. Uh, This is a story, Dallas Willard has this quote. I use it often because I love it. He says, people tend to find God when they are on a quest are in a crisis. When people are not on a quest, when they're not in a crisis, it can be hard to see God. Israel continuously hit rock bottom, and what's important here, because this is not what this message is about, what's important is that God reached out and saved them every single time without fail. And I don't believe God ever regretted reaching out and saving them. The people would hit rock bottom, he would save them. They would hit rock bottom, he would save them. They would hit rock bottom, he would save them. Uh, In our announcements this morning, um, our person said, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, you are welcome here because no matter how much you hit rock bottom, no matter how much you fall, no matter how much things don't work, God will always reach out and save you. God will always lift, lift you up with his hand. He will always reach out a hand and extend to you salvation. But we miss this part about freedom. The story of Judges talks about oppression. The oppression they put themselves in by their choices, Uh, the shame we put ourselves in because of our choices, the place of being stuck we put ourselves in because of our choices, and God offers freedom. It's an author named C.S. Lewis that I think most people are familiar with. Um, He wrote those books, you know, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the like, he also wrote this wonderful book that some of you may have read called The Screwtape Letters. Has anyone ever read The Screwtape Letters? Wonderful. If you haven't, it is worth a read because it's so just incredible to think about God, Satan, angels, demons in this way. Uh, the concept of The Screwtape Letters is this elder demon, a guy named Screwtape who has achieved greatness. He has tempted enough people. He has turned enough people away from God. And so he has now hit kind of the peak of demonhood. He is in administration. He's in bureaucracy. And he has a young tempter, a, man named Worm, a demon named Wormwood. And he says, Wormwood, here's how you tempt people away from God. 
And so this whole book is this fictional account, these letters from screw tape to wormwood on how to turn somebody away from God. And it is a fascinating read. I highly recommend. Um, I'll warn you one thing. If you've never read the screw tape letters and you try, uh, you will probably feel called out and personally offended because much of what screw tape tells Wormwood to do to this person is much of what you and I do on a, a pretty regular basis. I have a few pieces I wanted to pull out of here to talk about this ho-hum sin, these constant patterns. The first is this. Uh, young Wormwood is talking to screw tape and says, hey, my person, he's not sinning very big. Uh, he's just doing these little small sins, these small turns away from God, uh, what do I do to make him sin bigger? Screw tape says this. You will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. The enemy being God. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and into the nothing. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, milestones, or signposts. Hey, if you want to turn this man away from God, don't go big. Uh, go medium. In fact, in another section, he says this. The first job of the tempters was to harden these choices of the hell ward roads into a habit of steady repetition. But then, and this was all important, turn their habits into principles. Principles that the creature is willing to defend. Hey, let's have them do the same thing, contrary to God, over and over again until it becomes so ingrained. It's just a habit. It's just what I do. Maybe even something I defend. And finally, uh, probably my favorite passage. Wormwood in this passage is speaking almost at a, a convention or a ball to millions of demons. And he says, the great and toothsome sinners are made out of the same material as those horrible phenomena, the great saints. The virtual disappearance of such material may mean insipid meals for us. In other words, we're not seeing as many big sinners or big saints. And so it feels like our meals are so small on these mediocre sinners. But is it not utter frustration for the enemy? He did not create the humans. He did not become one of them and die among them by torture. In order to produce candidates for limbo, failed humans, he wanted to make saints, gods, things like himself, is the dullness of your present fare not a very small price to pay for the delicious knowledge that his whole experiment is petering out? He says, isn't it great that God created this priesthood of believers, uh, these people to follow him, and it's obviously not working? In fact, Wormwood goes on to say, our screw tape goes on to say, in fact, the problem with the great sinners and the great sins is that when a person hits a level that is so low, they may actually reach out and cry out to a God who will save them because there is nothing you can do 
that will separate you from the love of God. But if we just keep them in the middle to where they don't even know if they need it, we never have to worry about that. The things we do over and over again. Jesus, in fact, said it like this. At Revelations 3, 14 through 16, he's speaking to the church of Laodicea. Jesus speaks to seven different churches. And to these churches, he gives commandments. He gives um, things that they need to do well, things they need to do better, things that they are doing well. And to the church of Laodicea, he writes this. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You're just writing the middle. I called you to freedom. I called you to something great. Um, I called you not to be stuck, but you're just okay in the middle, and I'm not okay with that. God's story. The worst part about the self-enslavement we feel with sin, the worst part about the slavery we put ourselves in is that we put ourselves there. That we make the choice. And God offers freedom. He offers more. I'm gonna call the band out. Um, this concept of freedom uh, is a hard one. Uh, I think one of the best ways to move towards freedom is to understand that there are generally parts of ourselves that we don't share. There are generally parts of our lives that we keep hidden. There are generally actions or things we do that we don't let anybody know. Uh, and that allows us to stay stuck. Uh, because if nobody else knows, uh, I don't have to worry about changing it. Uh, and because generally we rank good decisions, bad decisions, sins, I can just assume the person next to me is actually worse off and mine isn't that bad. There's this practice that you generally see in more liturgical churches, um, usually Catholic churches, called confession. Now, the concept of confession is that you would go before a priest, you would share what's going on, you would share your sins, and the priest would listen. They would possibly share a benediction. They would give you something to do, and they would send you on your way. And, and we don't practice that in that form here at Discovery. Um, but confession is one of the best paths to freedom that I believe you can find. And here's what it looks like. Uh, it doesn't involve a pastor, or it doesn't have to, it can. The Bible calls us a priesthood of believers. What confession looks like is finding a person that you trust and saying, hey, here's that last 10% for me. Here's where I am. Here's what I struggle with. Here's where I get stuck. Here's the ho-hum. Here's the middle ground. Here's where I fall back to every time. And I just wanted you to know, 
Uh, and in my experience, most of the time I've shared that, I usually get a response back of, yeah, me too. Yeah, I get that. Now, in, in our society, I think that true, close relationships can be difficult. I actually think especially for men, 30s, 40s, 50s, finding those close relationships can be difficult, um, which is why I also don't think that God ever designed us to go it alone. Uh, at the beginning of the service, I talked about doing life in community. It's the best thing the local church does. Uh, and I believe that doing this with other people is the way to do it. Uh, we have many ways to plug into community here at Discovery, serving groups, classes. If you are not in community, if you do not have a person you can share that 10% with, uh, I would encourage you to find someone. Uh, I've been a part of multiple groups here at Discovery, um, and it's given me an opportunity to meet people that I can say, here's where I am. Here's the 10% that nobody should ever find out. Can we do this together? I'll say again, as I said earlier, um, if this is, this 10% that you hold back is for your safety, if it is trauma, I am not asking you to share that with people you don't feel safe with. There are professionals you can meet with, and we would love to connect you with professional, but I'm saying if you are stuck in the same sin over and over again, what would confession look like in your life? What would it look like to name and break that pattern? Let me pray for us. Hey, God, it's Jake. Uh, it can be discouraging to realize that some of my struggles, struggles I've had for a long time, and that the, the handcuffs of sin I put them on myself and I, I, I tighten. God, I pray for the people in this room um, that those who are stuck in that can recognize that as well. God, I pray for ways to break the pattern. I pray for community. God, I thank you for the act of confession. And God, I pray for us to recognize what it would look like to be called a great saint as opposed to following the plodding path. God, thank you. Amen.